Drink and Read presents War and Peace, Volume 2, Part 3, Chapters 12 through 26. I see you blowing me a kiss, it doesn't take an artillerist to understand the bombs you're dropping, baby. If you see something in my eye, don't be like Pierre and overanalyze, this isn't Freemasonry, baby. So if it's war or if it's peace, don't make a fuss, this isn't Dostoevsky. Here's what I'll do, I'll play loose for a date with Andre Bokonski. So it's just uh, a little crush. crush, not like I'll faint every time we touch. It's just uh, some little thing, crush. not like everything I do depends on you. Sha la la la. Sha-la-la-la. Hello, my name is Jonathan Kwiatkowski, and we're about to read some good shit. Welcome back to Drink and Read, a War and Peace recap podcast, and I'm happy to see you. That song, of course, goes out to young Natasha Rostov, because in these few chapters, she's going to get uh, a little crush. And this crush on one Andre Bolkonsky is going to spearhead her character development and arc throughout the majority of the remainder of the novel. Very apropos with young love being the core context of these chapters because Valentine's Day was a couple weeks ago and I'm in the mood for love. However, I'm in the mood for two more things as well. That's self-flagration and libations. We've got two sections to cover. The appendices section, very minor. I think I was holding up. Do excuse me if my energy kind of dwindled off at the tail end of those last few chapters. 16 chapters is a lot to read for one episode. Um, But today's going to be a little bit better because I believe we're at 14, if my math's correct. I didn't go to school for math or anything, so beg my pardon if I got any of that wrong. And for the libation section, We've got some thirsty characters today, so I'm going to be doing some thirsty work with just some Nestle. Is it Nestle or Nestle? It's Nestle now that I'm recorrecting myself. Pure life water. This water's cheap. I bought it in bulk at Costco. No, BJ's. Wow, I'm doing a lot of switchy swatches today. But thirsty characters, thirsty work nonetheless. How much water have you drank today? Hmm? Maybe you should have a little bit more. Are you drinking from one of those gallon jugs? You know, that's marked up for the hours of the day? I know I try to. Anyways, enough about me. Let's get into the action of Tolstoy's characters in War and Peace today. Where we left off, Andre was going through another point of self-reflection and he discovered by non-interacting with the young Natasha that he's ready to live life again. Pierre was trying to reconnect with his religion and he unfortunately got back together with Helene, which will probably provide disastrous consequences along the road. And Nikolai and Boris, Boris and Nikolai, were up to their old army shenanigans again, trying to outclips one another trying to fall in good graces with the Emperor, and trying to stay alive. But enough about those men. These next few chapters go out mainly to Natasha Rostov, the novel's heroine. We finally get an intimate look into her life. She's old enough 
Well, she's technically still a preteen, but eh, what are you gonna do about it? One of the best characters in all of literature history, now is her moment to start shining. The year is 1809, and Natasha is now a young, 16-year-old gal. Technically, she's of age to start living in the society, so good for her. And previously in the novel, we got this interaction between Boris and Natasha, how they were saving themselves for one another. Natasha's gonna wait four years until she was of age, and the two were gonna get married. We've seen that Boris doesn't really feel that way about Natasha, and Natasha, with her crutch of the week, um, has never really felt that way truly for Boris, so they have gone their separate ways. But Boris has taken this to the next level. Although he visits Moscow frequently, he has dined and dashed. He has not seen Natasha since. And let that be a lesson to all you ghosters out there. You can't love what you can't see. And no, that's not spurned by my own personal rejection. Just, you know, some humble advice. And it's a little bit sad because both of these characters are so young. And even Countess Rostov is like, well, some people change and old friends don't come to visit. I'm an emotional person. I see where Countess Rostov is coming from this, how we all grow and change as people, and then we don't connect with one another, and whenever someone walks out of my life, I miss them sorely and dearly, and I wish that I could be a better friend, but, uh, you know, we all go our separate ways. That's life. But Boris and Natasha are young, and as young people often do, they'll get over it. But now that the Rostovs are in St. Petersburg, Boris says, you know, I will go visit them. And he walks in and he sees that Natasha has grown into a beautiful woman and has instant regret like, damn, she fine. Maybe I should have stuck around a bit longer, but we both changed so much. Um, Natasha feels the same way about Boris. He says, She says to herself, wow, he's grown. Look how mature he looks now and fashionable. Maybe we should have stuck together, but we are changed people. And the two proceed to hang out, and it's super duper cute. Boris is obviously trying, maybe, to get back in love with Natasha, and Natasha is trying to do similarly, but they just resort to, you know, we're, we're kind of friendly now. Let's stay friends. But super duper cute. Love this chapter. Boris realizes that he is uh, too low a class to ever hope to be married to Natasha, and Natasha is from the up-and-up in society, so it would not be a positive, good-fortune marriage for her, uh, despite her being a beautiful, wonderful person. But this does inspire. Natasha's innocence rubs off on Boris, and he goes, I have to stop seeing Helene. This is not a healthy relationship. She's much older than me, and it's not good now that she's especially remarried to, at least in society's eyes, to Pierre. Chapter 12 ends, and chapter 13 begins with Natasha going to her mother's bedside and having a little girl chat on Boris and the ins and outs of marriage. Natasha's mother says, you are 16 now. When I was 16, I was married, which is crazy to think of getting married at 16. But as I say, my favorite quote, it was a different time, and people were much more mature for their age back then, so it makes sense in the logistics of this book. But a little creepy by today's standard, just a lot, a lot on the plate. Natasha is asking her mother for some feedback. Should she marry Boris? Now, Natasha's mother, Countess Rostov, says, no, you really shouldn't marry Boris. First off, he's your first cousin, which isn't really a big deal. There's a lot of kissing cousins in this society, and that usually floats the boat. But the big thing is, you'd be marrying down. He is not as well-to-do as us, and this won't be as advantageous for you in the future. And finally, Natasha, do you really love Boris? And Natasha is admitting to herself, no. She's just coming into her own womanhood and seeing that she is pretty enough to get any guy she wants. 
Now, before your mind goes there with, oh, Natasha's just stringing people along, what makes her any different than Helene? Well, she's younger. She is just, you know, feeling the fantasy. We're all young. We're at, she's at her prime. She feels pretty. She knows she's pretty. She's just living life. So please let Natasha be Natasha. Let her experience the joys of womanhood. And that's not slagging on Helene. Helene has just had a different kind of life, a different upbringing. So maybe Helene is lashing out in the way that she knows how. I do not like when people make comparisons between the two, but unfortunately that's where the story goes, and we're gonna have to see how Natasha is on this pedestal why Helene is tossed to the side for her actions. Both of these characters are great and should be respected for their individuality. Natasha wishes that arranged marriages weren't the thing and that people could kind of just date to figure each other out, which we do in the modern century, which, great renovation. I can only imagine what Natasha would do with online dating available at her fingertips, but that's a story for a different time period. So then Natasha strikes up a strange conversation with her mother, well, at least strange to her mother. Natasha has a form of synesthesia where she views people and emotions and such as colors. So she says that Boris gives her a very gray, ordinary color, but whenever she talks to, for example, Pierre Bezukhov, she gets a dark blue where she obviously detects his sorrow and sadness, but inside that dark blue is a passionate, fiery red, which she admires. Now, Natasha's mother is initially like, tut tut, what are you talking about? But apparently this is a common literary trope where uh, artistic characters would have synesthesia just to see that they're viewing the world a different and more colorful way. And I don't know, that always sounds like a, a really cool thing to have. I would like to like check out people's auras and chakras and describe them through color. So all the more power to Natasha. This just adds to her passionate, um, inventive, imaginative personality. Before going to bed, Natasha says, I need someone my age who I can discuss my problems with. And she looks to Sonia and she says to herself, well, Sonia is far too innocent. She's loved Nikolai her whole life and she's loved nothing else. So I can't really explain to her. My mother doesn't get it. So I'm going to develop, I suppose, the only way I can handle this situation is by creating a very uh, detailed internal monologue with myself, which, hello, introverts, I've been there. Then the chapter ends a little bittersweet. Countess Rostov sees that Natasha isn't really into Boris and it wouldn't be a very feasible relationship for the both of them, so she takes it upon herself to invite Boris over, have a little conversation with him. I imagine that she put him down very politely and elegantly, um, but she suggests that Boris not come to visit Natasha anymore, uh, barking up the wrong tree, and with that, Boris doesn't visit the Rostovs ever again. Well, I don't want to say ever, but in that regard to seeking Natasha's hand and expanding this relationship. So it's a little sad, but I, I think it was for the best intentions. Chapter 14, it's the eve of New Year's before 1810, before the big ball drops, and there is a huge celebration going on, and the Rostovs have been invited However, the Rostovs, as is their modus operandi, always struggle to get ready because they're all concerned about the way they look. They want to look the best, they want to feel the best, and this is a great, they're just a fun little family to be around. And it's secretly hilarious because the Rostovs are like, oh, are we going to get an invitation? Even though they always get an invitation because they have fallen just a, a peg down in society with this debt that they accrued. But everybody wants the Rostovs to be there. So of course they get an invitation and they're, they were panicking to get ready. They had dresses set out and then they put them away and then they put them back again. And they're like, oh no, I have to get that dress that I put away three times. Where did I put that? And the house is just a whole kerfuffle because everyone's trying to get ready at the same time. The family is already two hours late, but we know that the Rostovs can handle making a fashionable entrance at any time. The party don't start till they walk in. 
this is going to be Natasha's first big ball, her essentially her coming out, her cotillion, however you want to put it. And she's been feverishly excited since eight o'clock in the morning. And she's been helping herself, Sonia and her mother get ready so they can look as best as they possibly can. Natasha is handing every minute detail that she possibly can. She's trying to fix Sonia's hair for the tenth time, pin her mother's toque or shawl to herself in the, the correct way so it's fashionable. But two hours late, come on, we gotta get this going. Natasha's flinging on her dress, but they realize the dress is too long. Luckily, the servants are there and quickly pin it up, hack it out, whatever they have to do to make it just the right cut. Natasha sees her father, says he looks good. Sonia is in the corner worrying, going, say what you will, Natasha, the dress is still too long. And Natasha gives her the old eye roll like, Sonia, please don't ruin my moment. It's going to be fine. I'm going to enjoy whatever I'm going to wear. It's quarter past ten, everyone's finally ready, they hop in their carriage, they gotta go pick up some friends, and then they can head over to the ball, but everyone is excited and the moment is here. This is going to be the ecstatic, iconic moment in War and Peace. Chapter 15, the Rostovs arrive, the ball is in full swing, and Natasha is dazzled by absolutely everyone and everything she sees. Natasha is like a kid in a candy store and she's overwhelmed but remembers how to act. She has to be gracious and majestic and she realizes that everyone and everybody is checking her out and commenting on how beautiful she is. So she's a standout. In this crowd of exuberant wealth, there are a few characters, a few standouts that we should come to notice. Of course, Helene is there, and she is declared the most beautiful woman in all of society. Everyone's mouths are agape at her and how wonderful she is. Pierre is there, kind of holding up her coattails, and everyone commenting that Pierre's made a good match, but I don't see them doing well together. And Helene's brother, Anatole, is there, suspiciously close to Helene. Natasha sees that Pierre is searching for her and starts to run over to greet Pierre, but before she does, Pierre stops and starts talking to Andre, and Natasha goes, Oh, this man, I remember him. He visited us once in the summer, and she goes to talk to her mom about, Oh, that Andre, I'm interested in him. It's funny to mention that the old women who are with the Rostovs are like, oh, Andre, can't stand him. Every time a woman tries to talk to him, he uses that vast intelligence of his and immediately shoots them down. But I guess you can have him, right? If you know him, that is. Oh, Natasha knows Andre, and she's about to know him a little bit better. Chapter 16, suddenly the music stops because Emperor Alexander and his queen, Elisaveta, have arrived and they commence with the dancing and everyone's super excited. The dancing is in full swing, but Natasha worries that no one is going to choose her to dance as this is her first ball and no one really knows her yet, but she longs to dance more than anything in the world. Andre walks past, Anatole walks past, Boris walks past, and then does a double take, and him and Vera are the only ones to come and chill with them, but Natasha's like, please, don't let me sit here with Sonia all night, I don't want to be a wallflower. Pierre turns out to be the hero and actually quite perceptive for a change in character and notices that Natasha is on the verge of tears because she's not dancing her first dance and he goes over to Andre who's naturally trying to accomplish business even at this ball and says, hey Andre, best buddy, there's that girl over there, the young Natasha Rostov, why don't you go ask her for a dance, she really wants one and Andre's like, mm, that girl, that girl that I was uh, gazing out the window longingly and heard her talk and sing from above, perhaps I shall. So Andre walks up to Natasha and says to the family, oh, we've already been well acquainted before, scoops her up in his arms, and the two begin dancing. We find that Andre is one of the best male dancers in all of Russia, and fortunate for him, Natasha is a quick study and a fastidious dancer. She dances well, and they are the envy of all watching. While dancing, Andre comments to himself that he feels alive again, and he recognizes Natasha's beauty. So is this love? 
Might be. Chapter 17. After the first dance, Natasha goes back to sit down with her family and sees that every eligible man there wants to have a dance with her, so Natasha does not stop dancing the whole night, and being a good friend, she sends the surplus men over to Sonia. Sonia, I love you. Here, have my scraps. For the majority of this chapter, it's just Natasha's inner monologue and how good a time she's having and how appreciative she is to Andre for asking her to dance and how this is just going swimmingly for her. Unbridled joy, Natasha's modus operandi. Andre asks Natasha for another dance and he's kind of appreciative that Natasha's young and she's not ingrained in the social standings of Russia just yet and Natasha sees that in him as well, how he marches to the beat of his own drum and doesn't care what other people think, so they're technically a great match for one another. And Natasha's making some innocent young mistakes on the way she pronounces French words, but Andre finds it endearing and charming, whereas old Andre would have probably been like, um, girl, correct your grammar and then come to me, but him, he sees past all that. Then Natasha runs off, she's a little bit tired, but she's like, oh no, come sit with me, I'm gonna get some friends, we could sit together, and Andre has a thought, like, if she goes to her cousin before that other woman and asks her to come sit, I will marry Natasha on the spot. And then he shakes his head and goes, dude, what are you thinking? Are you that in love that you're going to ask this young girl to marry you right here right now not as unlikely as you might think natasha's exclaiming her joy to her father and states that she's never been happy in her life and it's good to see it's a good emotion um especially with the trials and tribulations that this young girl is going to face in the coming chapters but it's nice to see natasha so unbelievably happy at this point on their way to dinner, Natasha passes Pierre, and Pierre is grumbling because Helene is doing better in society than he is, and he feels like he shouldn't even be at this ball, and Natasha asks Pierre, why are you so sad? Like, truly, the world is a magical, beautiful place, and Pierre just harumps off, and Natasha goes, you know, I can't really see eye to eye with poor sullen Pierre. I'm happier, and that means that the world is happy. There's that empathy moral. We've got to think about how other people react in certain scenarios, but Natasha's young. Chapter 18, it's the morning after the ball, and we're going to see how Andre is going to react to the world around him after being exposed to Natasha's uh, fluorescent personality. Um, he's trying to get some work done and get Natasha out of his head, but he finds that he cannot, and that the work isn't going as well as he would hope. Something that he was extremely passionate about just a few months ago is starting to lose its charm. One of Andre's friends, Bitsky, comes over and starts telling Andre about something that he thought he would be previously excited about. A state council was going on and politics and whatever, and Andre has a deep soul-crushing thought going, what does any of this even matter? It's not going to make me happy in the long run of things, so I'm kind of over it, teehee? What privilege, Andre, but uh, good on you. You're thinking about living your life to the fullest, and I can't stand in your way for that. Andre's stewing about how he's changed all day, and that night he has dinner with Speransky, and when he arrives to Speransky's house, there's all these dignitaries there talking about the betterment of the council or whatever, and Andre feels as if he's seen Speransky for the first time. Everything that was attractive about him first is now a put-off, a turn-off, and Andre isn't as into him as he initially was. And these men are holding a detailed conversation, and Andre would normally be the one to jump in and offer his wit, but he's finding that his jokes don't land, and he can't make a headway into this conversation, and he just feels like an outcast now amongst this group. The men are talking about Napoleon's Spanish campaign, and then resort to singing French songs that are supposedly witty, and Andre just feels like, I... no, I'm not into this anymore, and he gets up to leave. Speransky's like, where are you going so soon, my friend? And Andre looks into Speransky's eyes and just sees himself reflected back there and goes, what did I ever see in these men before? 
Um, I'm supposed to be at a soiree. I'm going to go. And it's hard for me to describe if Andre's relationship with Speransky was a good thing for him because it did get him out of that funk and invested in bettering society. But at the same time, was it for the right reasons? Are these men actually accomplishing that in the long run of things? Or are they just using their wealth to have parties and, you know, hold themselves slightly? Not in their forefront of their minds, but uh, in the back. Uh, above their fellow Russian people. So I guess it's good that Andre's leaving and doing his own thing now. It's just wild that he has a, a Mr. Toad new mania every week. You can't predict when Andre's going to zig because he's going to zag. Upon returning home, Andre reflects upon his four months in St. Petersburg and suggests to himself that why was he even doing any of this? He just wasted four months of his life, which I don't think he did. You have to you have to do in order to grow, and I feel like this was a growing period for Andre, but um, he shoots it down and goes, I've wasted my time here. Chapter 19, another super adorable chapter, and I know we've had a few of them back to back, but I find this relationship between Andre and Natasha very endearing. Um, Andre decides to go visit the Rostovs because he feels that he owes them a visit. And who is there but the girl that is the apple of his eye currently, Natasha. The Rostovs welcome Andre with open arms as if he's already a member of the family, and he reciprocates. He notices their generosity and is pleased by it, and he hopes that they... They see the treasure that is Natasha. She can light up a room simply by standing in it and smiling. And Andre is falling head over heels in love. Since this was a time before electricity, the natural way to entertain your guests is to have your young beautiful daughter sing for them. And Natasha and Sonia do just that. And Andre is brought to the verge of tears by Natasha's beautiful singing voice. And he questions himself, why am I almost crying? Is it because of my life or my lack of life over my dead wife, my son, my future, my past? I'm not really sure, but... He feels really great in expressing these emotions, finally, after keeping them bottled up for so, so long. Natasha questions Andre on how he enjoyed her singing, and he says he enjoyed it very greatly, and she doesn't really know how much he did, because he goes home that night and he's unable to sleep. He's tossing and turning, just thinking about his life, thinking about what Pierre told him to do and actually get living, and thinking about that experience with Natasha on that day, and he says, you know, while I still have the power in me, I should make sure that my son gets the best education, that I travel the world, and that I live each day to its fullest. So here is good boy happy Andre. At last we have found him. He is out of his goth phase for now and I love seeing it. Chapter 20, it's party time again, albeit it's much more awkward than the previous ball we just encountered. This one's hosted by Berg and Vera and Pierre receives an invitation. Pierre goes to this party already uncomfortable because he's always in a state of unease, but then he meets this odd couple, which we've been, you know, they're at the fringe of the novel already. We've got Berg and Vera, and we know Vera is a complete another bitch, and Berg is super duper strange, so they're kind of a perfect match for each other, but they're they're trying to control every small detail of the party setup like oh it needs to look like this oh it needs to sound like this these people have to mingle with these people and it's too much control in the party it's not a party it's more like a, a regimental mass <laughs> and there's this funny section where Berg is describing Vera as a weak-willed woman and that's why he wears the pants in the relationship and at the same time Vera is thinking that thank goodness my husband's a complete pushover and I'm wearing the pants in the situation <laughs> and it's oh it's so funny all right, Vera, dishing out the quotes in response to not having children too early. Yes, one must live for society. Mm. 
So Pierre shows up and he's looking for a place to sit, but he finds that there's nowhere for him to sit because it would disturb the symmetry of the room. Like everything is perfectly symmetrical, even the armchair. And Pierre just feels awkward existing in this space, as sure we all would. So high society starts passing in, we get Boris, we get the rest of the Rostovs, and the party gets started. The Rostovs bring with them an air of ease and grace, and this alleviates Pierre's emotions. Chapter 21, Pierre is finally sitting, and he's sitting across from Natasha playing Boston, and he just can't help but notice that Natasha feels like an almost completely different girl today. Whereas she's usually smiling and flirty and fun, today she seems somber, she's silent, and a lot meeker than she's normally accustomed to looking. Just as Pierre is questioning himself again why Natasha is so odd today, he hears footsteps behind him and in walks Andre in a charming, elegant way. He starts whispering to Natasha and Pierre observes that Natasha's mood does a complete turn. She is now happy, effervescent, and glowing again. So Pierre suspects there's something going on here. Hmm. We don't need any Detective Pikachus or Professor Layton's to understand what's going on here. Pierre walks over mid-conversation between Vera and Andre, and Vera, oh Vera, she is always stirring the pot for no reason. She's questioning Andre, what do you think of young Natalie? Could she surely hold a man for more than a week? I don't think so. Oh Vera, must you really stoop so low? You're already neck and neck with Ippolit for worst character in the book, and this, this is just too much. Luckily for us, Andre doesn't seem to be giving in to Vera's probing. Andre does have one of the best burns so far at Vera goes, you know Vera, I hear that the uglier the woman, the more constantly she strays. Ah! (laughs) Burn. He's referring to you, Vera. Vera is still completely clueless, and then she brings Pierre into this conversation to make it about Boris and Natasha's failed relationship. Like, why are you putting your sister on blast? She is actually experiencing joy. This is a perfect match for her, and Vera, you're ruining it. You're mucking it up, Vera. Ain't nobody asked you, and it is not your business airing your sister's dirty laundry when that relationship wasn't um, at it from the jump, from the get-go. All I'm saying that if Vera was my sister, she would have to walk around corners with a mirror because she'd have to be prepared to catch these hands at any moment. And Vera is further twisting the knife because Andre didn't know about this relationship with Boris and he has pangs of guilt, like, are they still in love? Am I intruding in someone else's relationship and I didn't even know it? Andre is flustered for the first time in the novel and approaches Pierre and is like, I have to talk to you. You know about those lady mason gloves that you're supposed to give your one true woman? I I want to talk to you about that, but no, it seems stupid. And before Pierre can get the full conversation out of it, Berg approaches and goes, Andre, come over here, have a conversation, have a drink. Pierre is left just scratching his head at what just happened, and I swear to Tolstoy, if Vera ruins this proposal, flames on the side of my face, scream, screaming... Burning! Chapter 22, aka My Dinner with Andre, Part 2. Andre goes over to the Rostovs, practically unannounced, but everyone knows why he's there and who he's getting ready to talk to. For the entire visit, Andre seems to be on the verge of telling Natasha something but can't bring himself to it. Natasha's getting a little worked up over it, and that night she has a conversation with her mom saying that, I believe that Andre truly has feelings for me, and he's on the cusp of proposal. Natasha is one part excited, two parts frightened because she's never had a proposal happen to her before and doesn't know exactly how to handle it in the best regards. Her mother is concerned as well, and the advice is just see how it plays out. 
Natasha exclaims that the instant she saw him during the summer on his small visit to that country estate, she felt that she might always have loved Andre. Natasha's also worried because she suggests, like, is it bad taste that he's a widower and I'm gonna marry him right after his wife has died? And her mom just goes, let it be, let it be. And meanwhile, across town, Pierre and Andre are discussing um, Natasha, of all people. And Andre tells Pierre, I'm strongly thinking about proposing to her. In a flash sideways, we see that Helene is throwing another soiree that Pierre feels uncomfortable attending because his wife is so dumb and how dare she put together these things and aren't there bigger matters to be, uh, you know, a topic of concern right now, but eh. Naturally, Helene has surrounded herself with a bunch of new boys to seduce and Pierre is disgusted and goes upstairs to work on his messianic text. Ugh. And in walks in Mr. Sunshine himself, totally different personality from anything that Pierre has been accustomed to. Andre walks in and goes, hello, dear heart, I believe that I'm in love. And Pierre is like, um, dude, are you okay? This isn't like the Andre that I've been exposed to all my life. And Andre goes, of course I'm okay. My heart is bursting at the seams for young of love Natasha Rostov. And Pierre, instead of being happy for his best friend, finds himself making comparisons about his life to Andre's, how Andre always seems to win in the end, and he's just a miserable old married wretch who doesn't love his wife and feels unloved by the world around him, but he puts on a fake smile, and he offers some glowing praise to Natasha, saying, like, of course, I've always known that girl, she's a ray of sunshine, naturally this would have happened, I'm, I'm very happy for you, but he's saying it through a, a heavy heart and kind of sighing and loafing around on the sofa. Whatever Andre's on, I guess it's a dose of Natasha, it's hilarious to see because he's just like, my heart has never been so full, I'm welcomed into the light that is life, and Pierre is just alone sitting in the darkness going, I can't really relate to that, and he goes, I'm sorry, dear heart, Andre says to Pierre, like, my heart, it's just so full, I can't help but see the good in everything now, and Andre, who are you? Chapter 23, even though he is an adult, Andre still needs the permission of his father in order to propose to Natasha, so he runs over to Bald Hills to meet old Prince Bolkonsky, and naturally, as we would expect, Prince Bolkonsky isn't impressed by this news at all. Old Prince Polkonski has a few reasons as to why he's upset. First off, it's not a good marriage in term of wealth and status. Andre will be marrying below his station, which isn't a good thing. Second, even though Andre is in his early 30s, mid-30s, Prince Polkonski is like, well, that's basically one foot in the grave and his health isn't so good, so I'm, I'm kind of worried about that. Thirdly, Natasha is much, much, much too young for him. That is a practically a teenager. What are you doing cradle robbing? And fourth, he tells Andre, if you're going to do this, you better take a year of engagement and tour the world and see the sights and make sure that your head is in the right space because once it's done, it's going to be done. And Andre's thinking to himself, this is clearly a test to see if I truly love Natasha because our love needs to last a year. That and Dad, do you think you're gonna die within a year? And that's strongly hinted that old Prince Bokansi's like, at least let me die first. Andre does finally agree to the conditions and says, I'm going to stay here for three weeks and just prepare to mentally engage Natasha. Natasha is back in St. Petersburg, and these three weeks she is falling apart without Andre. He's left without any notice, and she's super depressed and mopey and can't go on. Her family's trying to cheer her up. Then one day, all of a sudden, she just decides, you know what, I'm going to go back to living again. She puts on an old house dress, starts singing to herself and feeling the fantasy, going, I can really get used to this. Who never needed to get married anyway? 
And just as she's starting to forget Andre, she hears footsteps and then she replies, it was he. And she knows immediately that Andre's at the door and she drops all pretense and rushes to him. Andre comes in, sees Natasha and her mother, extremely happy when he sees Natasha and goes, I'm sorry for the short notice and the delay. I had to talk to my father about a very important matter. Countess Rostov, may I speak with you? Countess Rostov can put two and two together and they usher Natasha out of the room because it's kind of rude to have your your daughter there when, uh, you know, someone's asking for her hand. Countess Rostov is pleased but a little wary about this proposal. She doesn't outright come and say it. She says her husband and her are overwhelmed with the joy that this is the possibility and Andre goes I will tell her about it if you uh, grant me your consent which she does this is a great marriage for Natasha but I think she's a, a bit trepidatious about the age and the the speed at which this proposal happened Andre then reveals that his father has also granted him permission to marry on one condition. The engagement period has to be a year. They have to be engaged for a full year and then married. Um, Countess Rostov is like, I know Natasha's young, but surely this is a a little too much even for her. But Andre insists, no, it has to be a year. Sonia tells Countess Rostov that Natasha's in her room. Countess Rostov goes to Natasha and says, Go to him, my child. He has proposed and asked for your hand. Natasha is worried, but goes to Andre. And there's this really cute scene where they're both like, The first time I saw you, I wasn't sure about my feelings. But now looking back on it, I'm certain that it was love. We fell in love at first sight. And Natasha is confused, but she does agree. And on this agreeing, Andre looks into Natasha's eyes and sees that the mystery or some of the the charm that he previously saw there is gone. And then he feels a pang of worry and regret like, oh, have I imposed this relationship upon Natasha and her family? Within Natasha's mind, we see that she's completely dazzled by Andre and she just can't come to the realization that she is now an equal with him, this man who has experienced so much and is so high in society that the little girl is now a woman. Andre thinks she's upset about the year-long engagement because he is quite aged, at least in his own regards, and he knows that young women can change, you know, who they're interested in over the course of a year and she still has much to learn. Natasha kind of plays right into this by going, I have to wait a whole year? Ah!" And Andre's like, yeah, I'm sorry, kiddo. Natasha starts crying, saying, I'll die if I have to wait a whole year. But then the tears of sorrow turn to tears of joy, going, I'll do anything for you, Andre. And from then on, Andre and Natasha are fiancés. Are fianced to one another. Are engaged is probably the correct thing to say. Chapter 24, Andre and Natasha are engaged, but Andre insists that the engagement be kept secret and no one know outside the immediate circle of their families. This is actually a pretty cool move on him because if Natasha breaks said engagement, she'd be harder to marry off. I'm not a big fan of this doubt cast on the female gender, though, because... Andre has just as much ample opportunity to cheat or stray from Natasha... But that's not the way this book's lens is uh, directed. During this budding relationship, Andre is over every night for dinner, a part of the Rostov family, and Natasha and him grow closer and closer to one another. The descriptions of the Rostov family during this chapter when Andre and Natasha are lovey-dovey with one another is priceless because whenever they're in a room together, they just either sit silently and watch the lovers or they all collectively get up and move to another room. During their conversations, Natasha promises Andre that she will love his family and especially his young baby boy with all her heart and take care of 
him whenever Andre's away, so there's no need to worry about that, which is a generous, you know, Natasha has come from a huge family full of siblings, so I think she would be inclined to take care of the baby, and it's a cute gesture. Another priceless Sonia moment is Sonia is so nervous about getting in between this relationship that whenever Andre and Natasha enter a room, I just imagine her diving out the nearest window in order to get away. Andre's about to start his year abroad in Germany, and before he goes, the night before he goes, he brings over Pierre and goes, Look at this man! You've known this man for your entire life, and this man, although he appears funny and sad most of the time, he has a heart of gold, so I need you to go to him with any problem you may have, and he says this to both Natasha and Sonia. This is an important direction that will play into the next big piece section of the novel. The Rostovs agree to take any problem they have immediately to Pierre, and Pierre goes, that's fine with me as well. When Andre does leave, Natasha breaks down, and she's super duper depressed for two weeks before returning back to her old high spirit itself, but something's different. She seems more mature, and at the same time, a little bit more sad than when this engagement first started. Chapter 25, just like old times, when Andre's away, we're going to get an intimate look into the house of Bolkonski. And Andre's father, old curmudgeon, is very pissed and bitter that his son is going to be married again. Old Prince Bolkonski is resorting to his old ways by taking all of his frustration out on young Mary. He's intricately emotionally abusive to Mary for not having a child of her own and forcing her, the majority of her time is doting on Nikolushka and the fact that she is really invested in her religion and Mary, she can't turn to anyone. This is her father whom she loves and respects and she can't go against his wishes because that's not the type of girl she is as much as we would wish it so. So she sees no other option than to just deal with this pain being inflicted on her. One of Mary's only outlets and escapes, of course, is with her pen pal, Julie Carragin. But Julie is going through a rough spot in her life as well. Her brother has just died in war, and she's finding difficulty in getting over the grief of losing a loved one. Mary does her best to send her condolences to Julie, but it's veiled through religion, of course. This is the lens that Mary champions all the time, and she says that religion is the only thing that can help you get over the death of a loved one, as she has been using her belief in God and a higher power to help her cope with losing Lisa. Now, I don't think we come to know exactly how Julie feels or interprets this letter. Um, I wouldn't recommend, you know, shoving God down everyone's throat. It's not everyone's cup of tea, but it does come across as a friend reaching out to a friend in time of need. And this war has made both of these young girls mature. Remember the last time they were writing letters to one another, they were gossiping about what's going on and throwing subtle shade at one another, but their friendship has outlasted this war and their hardships. Mary reveals that she will not be joining um, Julie in Moscow for a meetup in the summer because her father is exceptionally ill and he's extremely pissed off at the way Emperor Alexander is being all chummy with Napoleon after this brutal war. And Mary is going to make another sacrifice, her social life, in pursuit of caring for her father who is emotionally abusive to her. So I can't say I would do the same thing in her scenario, but her religion has given her the strength to go on. Mary then, uncharacteristically, um, I think she inherited this from her father's beliefs, shows that she is not approving of Andre's marriage to Natasha or the rumored marriage of him to Natasha because she is a young, stupid thing, um, of poor social standing in comparison to the Bolkonskis, and she thinks 
that her brother is better off traveling the world for this year to open his eyes and that she never sees it coming, that Natasha will be a member of this family. Part of me wants to wish that Mary is just trying to keep her brother from experiencing more pain. And I really hope that's Mary's intention, but it's veiled and it comes across in a way that she automatically hates Natasha. And I think that's her father speaking or thinking through her. And in our final chapter of the episode, chapter 26, Mary's fears come to realization when Andre shoots a letter about six months later telling young Mary that I think I'm going to marry Natasha. Andre is in Switzerland in a spa trying to get better and he has sent a letter for Mary saying six months of my engagement are up and I feel no different. Natasha is going to be my wife. Can you do me a solid since you live with a dear old dad? Can you ask him to shorten the next six months into an even more, um, you know, curtailed three months so I can marry Natasha quicker. And Mary is reading this letter and I can imagine the beads of sweat on her furrowed brow as she's like, oh no, I'm in a, between a rock and a hard place here. What do I do? So Mary works up the courage and the next day she goes to her father and says, here's this letter from Andre. And <laughs> old Prince Bokonski replies back, you know, write your brother back. Tell him when I'm dead, which won't be long from now, he'll be free to do whatever he wants. And while he's at it, he can marry Natasha tomorrow. And you know who I'll marry? I'll marry Mademoiselle Boren. We've been growing closer together. And Mary is like, no, father, please. You don't know what you do because he's insinuating that he's going to marry the wart that he found on the street years ago, who's also the help for the family and Mary's only uh, companion who's been flirting with men behind her back. It's a little crazy. It's telenovela levels we're reaching here. Mary's internal struggle continues where she's at the point where she can't really take it anymore and she decides that the only way she can go on in this life is by raising Nikolushka in Andre's stead because he's never around and by becoming a wanderer devoted to God. You know, those people who visit the property and give Mary, um, you know, spiritual advice. She wants to become one of them. She goes out in secret to buy a traveling outfit that she's going to don and then leave this estate and just travel in pursuit of the Lord. And every time she's about to put it on and say, I'm going to start my life anew, she thinks of her brother Andre. And of course, she thinks of young Nikolushka, who she's raising, and she realizes that she loves them more than God, at least at this point. So Mary has got a secret plan in the back of her mind. We're going to see if that comes to any fruition. But uh, Mary's not in the best space in this novel. I can only hope that her situation gets a little better. And with that, our episode comes to an end. We had a lot of adventures, a few balls, a budding romance, a trip abroad, and Mary's inner turmoil expressed yet again. Um, when you join us next time, we're going to be looking at the entirety of Volume 2, Part 4, that's 13 chapters, I believe, entailing the majority of Natasha, Nikolai, and Sonia all go on a hunt in the countryside together. And then Nikolai and Sonia get a little lovey-dovey with one another. So uh, there's more to look forward to that. I think we're keeping a good pace with the novel. And I encourage you to please um, continue listening if you enjoy. I love the company and I love War and Peace. As always, I would like to remind you to rate, review, listen, subscribe, and reach out on uh, social media platforms. It really helps out the podcast. You can follow this podcast at Drink and Read Pod on Instagram. And I should have a new episode every Monday. At this point, we're almost halfway through the entire novel, and that's gone very briskly. And we haven't even gotten to the juicy parts yet. I'm excited. Okay, interessant. 
If for some reason you like the sound of my voice or my sometimes witty banter, uh, remember you can follow me, Jonathan Kwiatkowski, at LosingMyMindJK on Instagram, Drink and Read JK on Twitter, or follow one or both of my two other podcasts, the first of which is Anime Was Not a Mistake, where me and co-host Dan Ryan take a look at anime and anime-adjacent films. And my second, Nightcaps at the Theater, currently with a hiatus, but we've got a lot in the treasure trove for you to listen to. Nightcaps at the Theater with my co-host Matthew Cabrera and sometimes Mark Zebro Jr. Um, I'd be a big fan if you reached out, and I thank you for your support. Till next we meet, I have some preparations to make. My troika needs to be prepared. There is a trip to the country, and we're gonna go hunting for love. As always, dear readers, remember to drink and read responsibly. Prochet! Thank you for listening to Drink and Read. Hosting for this podcast brought to you by Anchor. This podcast can also be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and more. If you have any thoughts or questions, or any beverage recommendations, please feel free to reach out to us on drinkandreadpod at Instagram. Support of this podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.